From Maine Public Radio and mainepublic.org, I'm Robbie Feinberg with the news on this day in Maine, Thursday, February 1st, 2024. This Day in Maine is made possible by listeners and by Eastern Basements, a division of Maine-owned Eastern Mold Remediation, offering crawlspace repairs and waterproofing, easternbasements.com. Family members who lost loved ones in the Lewiston mass shootings testified on Thursday before the independent commission that's investigating the tragedy. They described the agonizing wait to find out news about their loved ones, the trauma they've endured since, and their frustration that more wasn't done to prevent the worst mass shooting in Maine history. Patty White reports. It's only been three months since the shootings, and the losses from that day are still raw. Rachel Sloat was engaged to Peyton Brewer-Ross, who was killed at Schmengi's. She told the commission that their two-year-old daughter still looks for her dad. She still calls out for him. They used to play a game together. She would stand at the top of the stairs at bedtime, and she'd say, Daddy, where are you? And he'd call out, here I am, and he'd pop out from the bottom of the staircase. And she still does that on occasion, and he doesn't pop out, and she doesn't understand why. Sloat said she was told by a friend the night of the shootings that her fiancé had died, but she held out hope, even as she received condolence messages. She said she didn't receive official confirmation until after 1 o'clock the next afternoon. Sloat was among several people who described the excruciating hours waiting for information. Jeanette Rondazzo said she spent a sleepless night calling hospitals and police over and over. It wasn't until the next morning, she said, that police came to her house to tell her that her son, Brian McFarlane, had died. And they couldn't have been nicer, they couldn't have been kinder, but I wish we had had information sooner. I just think that's horrible that we had to spend a whole night not knowing where my son is, and confirmation. Members of the deaf community said they had even less information. Elizabeth Seal, who lost her husband Joshua Seal, said that certified interpreters weren't allowed inside the hospital in the hours after the shootings. Speaking to the committee through hearing sign language interpreter Grace Cooney, Seal said victims had to rely on virtual interpreters on an iPad who lacked context to provide the most effective communication. And also because of the activity going on in town, the um, connectivity was really poor and they would often have freezing issues and it was just um, exacerbated the frustration and the issues with communication. Others expressed anger and frustration that police and the Army Reserve failed to take weapons away from the shooter despite receiving warnings that he might be dangerous. Kathleen Walker was bowling at just-in-time recreation with her husband Jason Walker and friends the night of the shootings. She described to the committee how he and his best friend Michael Delorier charged at the shooter when his gun jammed, providing time for others to escape. Both were killed. There were several opportunities to take firearms away from a known mentally unstable man. <coughs> it should never have taken Mike and my husband to be the first to approach him to disarm him. Everyone was so scared of this man snapping that no one took action. The grief from losing loved ones is compounded by family members' personal trauma. Walker said she lives with daily fear and bought a gun. Michael Delorier's partner, Stacy Sear, who was also bowling that night, said she doesn't know if she'll ever feel safe again. And she's haunted by survivor's guilt. 
I feel guilty I didn't run to be by his side instead of running out of the building. The thought of him dying alone torments me. Cassandra Violet, daughter-in-law of Bob and Lucy Violet, who were both killed at just in time, told the committee that she struggles to function with daily tasks. The emotional toll, the nightmares, loss of sense of safety, unpredictable panic attacks, and something that isn't discussed as much, the impact to my cognitive status. I'm two classes away from my master's degree. Now I carry notebooks with me to write things down because I won't remember them. As family members work through their own trauma, they're also trying to keep the memory of their loved ones alive. For Rachel Sloat, the fiancé of Peyton Brewer-Ross, that's especially important. Their two-year-old daughter, who still calls out for her dad, is so young, she says. And I want those words, where are you? I want that to resonate in the ears of anybody who hears this. Every politician, every member of law enforcement, every registered voter in this country, I want you to hear those words. Where are you? Because my fellow Americans, where are you? We failed my little girl. For Maine Public Radio News, I'm Patty White. And now it's time for Maine's Political Pulse. I'm Robbie Feinberg, joined by Maine Public's chief political correspondent, Steve Missler, and our state house correspondent, Kevin Miller. Because for the sake of the communities, individuals, and families now suffering immeasurable pain, for the sake of our state, doing nothing is not an option. And that was Maine Governor Janet Mills speaking at her State of the State address to the legislature earlier this week. One of the speech's major themes was gun violence, specifically in the wake of the Lewiston mass shootings last year. Mills is now introducing several policies that the governor argues would help to curb that violence by taking guns out of the hands of those who may be dangerous to themselves or others. Steve, let's start by breaking down what's being proposed here. Sure. So it might be helpful to begin by outlining what the governor isn't proposing. She's not proposing an assault weapons ban or a bill instituting a waiting period for the purchase of firearms or a red flag law. Those are priorities for the gun safety activists, but the governor has pretty much steered clear of them. Instead, she's expanding background checks, which is partially what the gun control activists want, And she's making a slight modification to Maine's yellow flag law and funding a network of crisis intervention centers. And it seems like the governor is is also having to to walk a a tightrope here. What what kind of political dynamics is she dealing with when it comes to the issues of firearms? Well, in this state, the dynamics are perilous, and that's because Maine has a long history of siding with gun rights. And going against that tradition is viewed by many politicians as possibly jeopardizing their election chances. That's why politicians are careful when they calibrate their rhetoric on this issue. And some of them just try to avoid it altogether. So let's dig into these proposals, Kevin, one by one. Uh, Let's start with the background checks issue. It's interesting to see this being proposed after Maine voters rejected the 2016 referendum that would have implemented universal background checks in Maine. Is the governor's proposal much different from that? What Mainers rejected back in 2016 was pretty close to what's often referred to as universal background checks. And that that means that background checks would have been required on almost all private sales, except between family members and uh, law enforcement. 
What Governor Mills wants to do is a more limited expansion while also exempting gun transfers between friends, neighbors, hunting buddies, what have you. But the big difference between 2016 and this proposal is that Governor Mills wants background checks on any private sales that are advertised. And whether that's online or in a print classified listing like a newspaper or Uncle Henry's. And that's a huge market. And what's the reaction been so far from guns rights groups? Is it getting a better reaction than the 2016 referendum? Yeah, well, people like David Trahan with the Sportsman's Alliance of Maine, who's a pretty influential voice here at the State House, they say they're reserving their judgment until they see the detailed language. Uh, but he's been talking to the governor in her office for some time, and he isn't opposed at this point. Republican lawmakers, on the other hand, uh, they lumped together the governor's proposals with much more aggressive gun control measures during a press conference on Thursday. So they are certainly signaling that they're not likely to go along with it. Yeah. And the the other major proposal the governor is putting forward is a tweak to the state's yellow flag law. Um, Kevin, just how much would that law change if this policy was pushed through? So the governor isn't proposing to change the yellow flag process, which is when someone is forced to temporarily surrender their guns because they've been deemed by police, uh, by a medical professional and by a judge as posing a risk to themselves or to others. That won't change. What the governor wants to do is to allow police to basically ask a judge for permission to take someone into protective custody even if they haven't committed any crimes yet. That would then allow them to start the review process because until you have someone in custody, you can't yellow flag them. And Steve, our gun safety groups, are they disappointed at all that she isn't proposing something that goes further? Well, Robbie, they're not using that word, disappointed, and that's probably because they want to make sure that they're not carved out of the bill writing process and whatever changes the legislature might consider when this legislation comes before them. And so what we're hearing is comments like this from Nicole Palmer, the uh, director of the Maine Gun Safety Coalition. In general, I thought that last night was a a really great starting point uh, for the conversation. We were really happy with um, the progress on background checks. um, And um, that alone represents a, a really great starting point. Uh, So, Robbie, uh, notice that Nicole highlighted the governor's background check expansion, which is a priority for the coalition. But she did tell me that she's concerned that the modification to the yellow flag law would actually add a step when what's needed are fewer steps to confiscate a dangerous person's firearms. Yeah. And Kevin, on a practical level, do we know if the governor's proposals would actually have much of an effect on situations like what happened with the Lewiston shooter? Probably not when it comes to background checks. Robert Card bought guns from licensed dealers because there were no flags against him in the federal background check system. But the governor's proposal to make it easier for police to take someone into protective custody might have helped. Uh, Last week, uh, Sagatahawk County Sheriff's Deputy Chad Carlton told the commission investigating the Lewiston shootings that he didn't feel like he had legal grounds to take Robert Card into protective custody. But you have to have the person. You can have probable cause, but you have to have the person. There is no tool in our toolkit to kick in someone's door and grab them and take them into protective custody. We don't have that. doesn't exist. But that's one of the things that the commission is looking into, whether police could have or should have used the yellow flag law that was already on the books. Yeah. And have have we heard from many legislators yet, Steve, on whether they're planning to support any of these measures? 
Yeah. And what's notable about their reaction, Robbie, especially among Democrats, is that they're not completely endorsing it. I think the reason for that is twofold. On one hand, they're getting a lot of pressure from gun control activists to go much further than this. And on the other, I think they're trying to assess whether this legislation will be opposed by influential gun rights groups like the Maine Sportsman's Alliance. If it is, then these proposals could actually lose support among rural Democrats in particular and Republicans. Well, they seem skeptical of the entire package. Yeah. And, and Kevin, you, you mentioned that independent commission that's currently investigating the Lewiston shootings. At some point, we, we are expecting some findings and recommendations from them. Uh, do you expect that to shape any of the debate around potential gun policies or what action does get taken in the future? Yeah, it seems highly likely, uh, almost inevitable, I'd say, that the commission will recommend some policy changes. But really, it's a question of timing. They're not expected to complete their investigation before lawmakers adjourn in April. And Governor Mills says that there are changes that she thinks lawmakers can and should make this session in case that might help prevent other potential tragedies. And that was Maine Public State House correspondent Kevin Miller and our chief political correspondent, Steve Missler. You can listen to our full Political Pulse podcast online. You can find that at mainepublic.org slash pulse. A legislative committee split along partisan lines over a proposed constitutional amendment guaranteeing a woman's right to access abortion. Six Democrats on the legislature's Judiciary Committee voted to endorse the bill, while five Republicans opposed it. Arguments for and against the bill largely fell along familiar lines, with some Republicans equating abortion to murder. But supporters such as Representative Amy Kuhn of Falmouth say an amendment is needed ever since the U.S. Supreme Court eliminated constitutional protections for abortion at the federal level. And I think it reflects a desire to send this question to the voters uh, so the people of Maine ultimately decide the scope of reproductive rights beyond this committee room and beyond the chambers downstairs. But the Republican opposition suggests a statewide vote is unlikely for now. That's because the Democrats don't have the two-thirds majorities needed in the House and Senate to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot. A formal complaint alleges that Maine Supreme Judicial Court Justice Catherine Connor should have recused herself from two recent appeals before the court. Thomas A. Cox, a foreclosure attorney, filed the complaint, asserting that Connors violated the Code of Judicial Conduct, which requires judges to recuse if their impartiality might reasonably be questioned. In her work as a lawyer, Connors was involved in two key foreclosure appeals in 2017. The case law from the decisions in those appeals was overturned by the court last month, and Cox says Connors should not have helped decide them. In my view, any reasonable observer would have reason to doubt the impartiality of the justices of the justice with her background. The complaint will now go before the Judicial Conduct Committee. If the committee finds that Connors violated the Code of Conduct, the matter will go to the full court to make a final determination on misconduct and disciplinary action. The Maine Department of Education unveiled a new plan Thursday for Maine's agency overseeing the education for young children with disabilities. Maine is the only state that provides special education for preschoolers through a state agency, but Maine's Child Development Services has faced heavy criticism for years over long wait lists, leaving some children unable to access services in the manner required by federal law. 
Education Commissioner Pender Macon told lawmakers on Thursday that under a new proposal, oversight for those children would gradually shift to local school districts. But Macon says that the state's current child development services offices would stay open, but instead function as service hubs to assist schools. It will keep them employed because we need their expertise and their experience and their knowledge of the network of private providers and their knowledge of those gaps where services are scarce or non-existent. While the department indicated the proposal was just a starting point, some lawmakers said they're concerned about whether local school districts can handle the additional administrative responsibilities. The legislature's education committee is expected to continue discussions on the issue in the coming weeks. A new pilot program in Portland could help 90 unsheltered people find stable housing over the next year. Nicola Grisco reports. The city of Portland is planning to launch the Housing Opportunities for People in Encampments, or HOPE, program this year. Most of Portland's largest encampments have been cleared, but there are some smaller sites on private property near the city's outskirts. Portland City Manager Daniel West says the program is meant to connect at least 45 people living outside with stable housing. So looking around and and ensuring that it's not going to be just for a month or two, that it's going to be something more consistent and really focusing in on the needs of the specific individual and trying to pair that person up with with what they need. The nearly $700,000 program would be paid for with funds from Maine Housing and City Pandemic Money which will be up for consideration Monday by the Portland City Council. The program will pay for the hiring of three housing navigators, and it will cover move-in costs and landlord incentives. The council will also reconsider the emergency order that allowed the Homeless Services Center to add 50 more beds late last year. West says she believes there's a clear need for the extra capacity to keep the shelter at about 260 beds through at least early June. For Maine Public Radio News... I'm Nicola Grisco. And the Maine Board of Environmental Protection on Thursday approved an emergency rule allowing property owners and communities to restore beach dunes washed away in last month's back-to-back storms for the next 90 days, foregoing the Natural Resources Protection Act permit process. The rule allows restoration using sand, gravel, and biodegradable materials. At a BEP meeting on Thursday, well selectman Tom Foley said his community will need more time and that metal anchors will be needed to secure core logs on Drake's Island, where dune restoration efforts were washed away. 90 days is not going to, I mean, it's, it's going to be helpful, but we're going to be doing this for probably two or three more years before we get anything resembling back the sort of protection. And, that mean, and, and that's hopefully we don't have another storm. The rule approved on Thursday doesn't allow the use of metal screws or strapping to secure dune restoration materials. And that's today's Maine News. For more stories, visit mainepublic.org. And coming up on Maine, calling at 11 o'clock on Friday morning, the subject is beavers in Maine. I'm Robbie Feinberg. Thanks for listening.